Hello and thank you for listening to this Word on Health podcast. I'm humbled to know what started as a lockdown project to share some of the radio reports we've made for the past 23 years for stations across the country has struck a chord with so many outside our listenership. I'm grateful to all the experts, healthcare charities and patient groups who have contributed along the way. I'd also like to pay tribute to all our family of radio stations who do such sterling work in the communities they serve and also to my co-producer, Sebastian Agas, who's worked with me on every one of the 1,600 radio reports and 49 podcasts we've made so far. In this edition, we're looking behind a campaign from the charity Anaphylaxis UK, speaking with one of their trustees and the GP and allergy specialist behind drhelenallergy.co.uk. And in my second interview, I'm looking at rare gene and chromosome disorders, talking to the scientific information officer of the charity Unique that represents thousands of genetic disorders, supporting 30,000 families here in the UK and across the world. Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Feel very best of health. For most people, a bee, wasp or hornet sting isn't dangerous. But for a small minority, it can lead to anaphylaxis, a life-threatening allergic reaction. Dr Helen Evans-Howells, a GP and allergy expert and trustee of Anaphylaxis UK, explains who's at risk. Anybody really could be at risk. Many people think with allergies, particularly if you have things like eczema or food allergies or asthma, then that's going to put you at increased risk for a bee or wasp sting allergy. And actually, that particular group aren't at any more increased risk than the general population. There are a specific group, as you might imagine, and that's beekeepers, because, of course, they're repeatedly stung. And therefore, their household members, if bees are kept near home, are also potentially at risk. The important things to know with bee and wasp sting allergies is they can't happen on the very first sting. But actually, sometimes people have been stung and not ever realised. So, of course, that's part of the problem with it. So usually people wouldn't know until, unfortunately, they have anaphylaxis. There are a proportion of people who have what we call a large localised reaction, where they're stung over the next 48 hours, they get a very large red raised area that's bigger than 10 centimetres. And those people have a, a slight increased risk that if they're stung again, so somewhere between 5 to 15%, that they then might have anaphylaxis. But otherwise, we don't really know when it will happen. And can you have anaphylaxis to other things? Yes, absolutely. You, drugs commonly cause anaphylaxis, foods, of course, and even for some people, environmental allergies. So things like exposure to cat or horses can be really problematic and they can cause anaphylaxis. So there's a whole heap of things that are dangerous for a proportion of people. How many people live with anaphylaxis? That's a really good question and a tricky one to answer, really, because often there are problems with coding of when people have allergies. So we know they're often misdiagnosed, that they're not coded properly at hospital or GPs. We know that around three to five percent of children have a food allergy and therefore any of them are at risk. About one to two percent of adults have a food allergy. And it's guesstimated that small numbers up to sort of 7% or so may have a bee or wasping allergy. So again, any of those could be. So it's hard to give you a definite number, but more than people might imagine. What are the symptoms of anaphylaxis? The symptoms are divided into sort of different categories, really. And it often depends on what the problem is. So many people who are stung by a bee or a wasp 
the thing that would actually happen is that they would drop their blood pressure and therefore they would just collapse. And that may or may not be with skin signs such as hives, so a rash that looks like nettle stings, swelling or other sort of features from the body. So they may just collapse in front of you. And then, of course, everyone can be wondering what on earth is going on. Classically, with food allergies, they tend to get more airway issues. So they may start coughing, their tongue might get swollen, their voice might go croaky, then they may have breathing issues. And usually it progresses with food allergy from those early signs into then potentially collapse with the drop in blood pressure and the rise in heart rate. So often it depends on what the mechanism is of the thing that you're allergic to. So if you're injected with something, injected with venom, injected with a drug, you're going to have a quick response and often it's going to be the drop in the blood pressure. Whereas if it's sort of touching something or eating something, you often get the skin signs, but not always and then the airway issues first. What should you do if you suspect anaphylaxis? If you think you're having anaphylaxis, the key thing is that's really important is to not move. And so often when you hear of these fatal anaphylaxis, which thankfully are rare, you hear about people running frantically to find their adrenaline injectors. Don't do that because that can progress a reaction. So they should stay put. And if they've not got breathing problems, they should lay flat and lift their legs to help the return of blood to their heart and their brain. If they've got breathing problems, they should sit down and sit slightly upright. But if the breathing problems go, then as soon as you can, lay flat and lift your legs. Of course, if you've got adrenaline auto injectors, use them. Always use them. They are completely harmless, really, for the majority of people. And ring 999 after you've used it. Or obviously, as soon as you suspect anaphylaxis, if you haven't got them. And what if you've got an out-of-date injector? Good question. Well, I mean, if you've got absolutely nothing available, I'd probably use it. They do take some time for the drug to sort of degrade. So it's likely if it's several months out of date that it may well still work. And when we've had issues in the past with limited availability of prescriptions, then the manufacturers did actually give lot numbers where they extended the expiry date. Generally, the point would be don't ever get into that position. So sign up on EpiPen or Jex website. They're the two adrenaline injectors we have in the UK and sign up for a text alert as to when the adrenaline auto injectors are due for renewal so that you don't become in that position. We know so much from studies and and even when my own son had anaphylaxis, it's so easy to just after the initial diagnosis for life to become more normal again and you forget to carry them, you forget to get your alerts. And when you look at studies, many people don't have them. They're not in date. They keep them in their bedroom drawer and you just never know when it's going to occur and you don't want to be that person or family that says, I wish I had the adrenaline and now it's too late. You you know, we know that deaths occur because people don't use their adrenaline in a timely fashion. So don't let that be you. What are the six ways to avoid being stung if you have an allergy? Don't wear bright clothing because we know that the bees or the wasps will think you're a flower and they'll fly up to you. Make sure that you cover up really and wear long shirts and long loose trousers Make sure you check before you're eating the food or the drink that there isn't an an insect in it, particularly if you're out on a picnic, because they do like to fly into your fizzy drink. So be careful with that. Be careful if you've got, you know, no shoes on that you don't step on them. And particularly thinking as the end of the summer comes when bees and wasps are around but become more sleepy, being mindful that they're not hiding in your bed, in your shoes and outside so you're not stepping on them. If you get stung... 
try to stay put and not flap about because they're more likely to sting you. So if they land on you, try and stay still. And of course, don't go up to bee and wasping nests and try and move them yourself. Make sure you call in people to move those for you. And we always set like so-called traps. So, you know, put a jar of jam somewhere distal to where you're eating and then hopefully they'll go over there rather than to your nice picnic so those would be my key things to do my grateful thanks to dr helen evans howells to find out more log onto our website www.wordandhealth.com that's www.wordandhealth.com keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter this is word on health with paul pennington Currently, there are over 7,000 known rare diseases and new conditions are being described through medical literature on a regular basis. Around three quarters of rare diseases have a genetic component. Dr. Claire Anderson is Scientific Communications Officer for the charity Unique that represents those affected by rare gene and chromosome disorders. They affect, we think, approximately 1 in 200 babies born in the UK each day. They can be caused by changes in a single gene, multiple genes or larger changes at the chromosomal level. And I think it's really important to stress at this point as well that when a genetic change like this does occur, it's not due to anything the biological parents did or didn't do and it's no one's fault. How do these disorders affect the individual? We know that some are life-limiting, but actually all of them are life-changing. It's actually very difficult to say exactly how a child will be affected by a particular disorder. Even people with the same genetic diagnosis and even within the same family, those with the same diagnosis can be affected very differently. For many of our families, something like developmental delay or one or more medical conditions may be the first sign that their baby or child is affected. Other members join us after receiving a prenatal diagnosis or experiencing multiple miscarriages. Other common features include some degree of intellectual disability, speech and communication difficulties, perhaps challenging behaviours. And also there is actually the possibility of a late onset conditions as well. Getting a diagnosis can be difficult. Can be very difficult. I saw a talk last week and actually it was unbelievable how many years it can be between, say, somebody first raising that there may be something potentially that needs investigating and actually receiving the final diagnosis. I mean, it really can take many years. It varies a lot from region to region, but really it is something that needs to be improved. And there are so many potential impacts, not just on the affected individual. It's actually not unusual, sadly, for families to break up due to the pressures of caring for their child or children. And the stress can also, of course, impact extended family, friendships and other relationships. The diagnosis could have implications for multiple generations. The impact on siblings is actually often overlooked, but it can be immense. And there can be, of course, an understandable focus on the needs of the child who has a genetic condition. But as I say, this can lead to siblings feeling perhaps neglected at times, parents not being able to give the same amount of attention to them as they do to the affected child. We also know that families face financial and employment difficulties. Fitting in working around caring responsibilities and doctor's appointments can be extremely challenging and actually isn't always possible. Families often tell us that managing appointments, following a diagnosis, it's like a full-time job in itself. And this means that we really need to have effective, joined-up coordination of care. By that suggestion, we don't have that at the moment? 
I think there are instances where things are improving. We know that for some conditions, they're now trying to make centres of excellence, you could say, or speciality centres where perhaps a child with that condition could go and the family could go along for the weekend and they could see multiple specialists in one place at one time. But that is very rare. I would say that one of the key things and actually something that's being discussed a lot in the rare disease community at the moment is the theme of coordination of care. It's something that I think is recognised by policymakers but obviously it needs funding and there's a lot more work that could be done on that. Alongside providing information, help and support to families both here in the UK and across the world, a key thrust of Unique's work is raising awareness. Why is that? Awareness is particularly important because of the lack of scientific knowledge and quality information about the conditions we represent. This often results in delays in diagnosis Crucially, rare diseases have actually long been relatively neglected in medical training compared to more common diseases. But with the advances in genomic technology and its applications in clinical care, this actually means that an ever-increasing use of genomic testing is happening across a growing number of medical specialties. So it's really essential that all clinicians have genomic education and training. I would like to say that this is beginning to change and there's initiatives such as the one implemented by a charity called Medics for Rare Diseases, which is run by doctors, for doctors, and they're helping to drive a real attitude change amongst medical students and doctors with the aim of speeding up the journey to diagnosis and improving patient experience. And when it comes to researching new therapies for rare gene and chromosome disorders, where are we at? Although these conditions are rare, there are often researchers working on the specific gene or genes that are responsible for a particular condition with the hope of developing new drugs or therapeutic treatments or even repurposing medicines that are currently in use for other conditions so they can be used outside the scope of the existing license for that medicine. There's also some excitement about the potential benefits of gene therapies, which might deliver in the future for genetic conditions. These are therapies that are aimed at changing the genetic information of an individual. So they substitute the disease-associated gene with the healthy version of the gene or gene product. And the potential of this is to induce an enduring therapeutic effect that treats the cause of the symptoms, not just the symptoms. And they may therefore not only ameliorate symptoms, also prevent disease progression. And there are grounds, I think, to be optimistic. There's a lot of work to do. But I think that these are things that could really help our families in the future. My grateful thanks to Claire Anderson. To find out more and link through to Unique, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.